You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. David Guzik here. I'm glad you could join me today on a Monday afternoon for this live question and answer time over my YouTube channel, Enduring Word, where we have a lot of teaching videos, but we also love doing these question and answer videos. And in the midst of this coronavirus global pandemic, we're doing these question and answer videos twice a week instead of our normal pattern of once a week. I don't know when we'll go back to the once a week routine, uh, but for right now, we're going to stick for twice a week, at least for the foreseeable future. Before I begin with our lead question here this afternoon, I've got to make a confession to you. And the confession regards uh, last Thursday's question and answer broadcast. Boy, did I mess up last Thursday. Let me explain to you. I mean, I find it a little bit funny myself. I don't know if you'll find it amusing or not. But I have noticed that uh, the quality of the YouTube live chats has diminished significantly. I'm using just a very basic go live on YouTube. I'm not using any streaming program or anything like that. I'm just going live on YouTube. And it's my understanding that because of the increased bandwidth that the YouTube has experienced during this whole coronavirus season, many more people at home streaming, many more people at home uh, doing live streams and such as this, that they've cut down on the bit rate uh, that they will allow. And so the quality of the videos isn't as good as it has been. Well, I've got a good friend who's been a huge help with the technical aspects of my website and the ministry and all that. And he suggested, why don't you record the question answer video as you are uploading it for live stream at the same time? Then you can post the recorded version at a higher quality. Well, of course, I forgot to do that. And in the middle of last Thursday's video, I thought I would make a comment, let people know why the quality of the video on the live streams wasn't so good. And in the midst of it, again, just as I'm thinking, I'm thinking, well, why don't I go over to my computer right now and begin recording in the middle of this YouTube live stream? So I went right over to... Uh, QuickTime, which is the program on my computer. Again, I just use a very simple procedure. I'm not using specialized programs and bells and whistles. I just go over to QuickTime. That's where I record the videos that I record on. And I clicked on Record Movie. And as soon as I clicked that, just as I had spoken about YouTube cutting back on bandwidth for live streamers, the YouTube video on Thursday, the question and answer video just went absolutely dead. It just froze. It stopped. It froze for me. froze for anybody watching. And it was entirely my fault. I messed the whole thing up. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. It was my fault. I'm sorry about that. Sorry for everybody who submitted a question on the live stream and got cut off. I didn't get to your question. If you want to ask it again today, I hope I can get to it. To me, I was disappointed. But at the same time, I smiled at myself just saying, well, I just messed up another thing there, didn't I? And hopefully I can learn from it. And I will not try to click that button and record this 
if we are going to record these as we're live streaming, we're going to do it with a different technology altogether, and we're going to avoid that. So anyway, that's how it goes for today. Now, let me get to our lead question for today. The lead question is simply this. Will we have or will we need God's mercy in heaven? And the lead question comes to us from Annie. Now, I won't say Annie's last name, but Annie is a good friend of both myself and my wife, Ingelil. She was a very valued student at our Bible college in Germany. Uh, then she became part of our staff of the Bible college in Germany. And since then, she's been a very esteemed colleague and a very esteemed just friend in the Lord and in ministry. So when Annie asked this question via email, I was happy to answer it. This is Annie's question. Is God's mercy eternally active or is that attribute limited to a world with sin in it? So she explains later on. She says this, I know all of God's attributes are coexistent and therefore eternal, but they are not always active. For example, Jesus has always been the judge, but he didn't operate as judge during his time on earth. There are verses about grace being revealed to us throughout the ages of ages. So that seems to be eternally expansive. But what about mercy? Is that finished or static once sin is over? He'll always be merciful, but will mercy still need to be new every morning in heaven is the implication of that. Or are all of God's attributes already static that is constant in their fullness and our minds just gradually become more and more aware of them in the ages of ages. Thanks and blessings, Annie. Annie, not only is it a pleasure to answer that question because of our friendship and love and respect for you, but I just think it's a great question. Will God's mercy uh, need to be expressed to us in heaven? And will it be expressed to us in heaven? And let me come at this question a couple different ways. First of all, as soon as Annie asked that question, and I read it in the email that she sent to me, my mind was immediately drawn to the great phrase, his mercy endures forever, repeated many, many times in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, that phrase, his mercy endures forever, sort of has a liturgical quality for it. In other words, it, it may be the kind of thing where the priests of Israel would say something and the congregation of Israel would respond with that familiar phrase, his mercy endures forever. We can't say exactly how it works, but it has that feel about it. Now, uh, let me read to you, for example, Psalm 136, the first four verses. By the way, that uh, this phrase, his mercy endures forever, is especially prominent in Psalm 118 and Psalm 136. Let me read you just the first four verses of Psalm 136. This is what we read. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. And throughout Psalm 136, that's exactly how the whole psalm lays out. 26 times in Psalm 136, we find that great phrase, his mercy endures forever. Now, the word mercy there translates that great Hebrew word chesed, which is sometimes translated mercy, 
Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. Sometimes it has the concept of loyal love or covenant love in the Bible. It can be translated different ways, but mercy is not a bad translation. I would just say that it's not a complete translation. This is one of these great Hebrew words that can't be comprehended by just one English word. But, but again, it certainly encompasses the idea of God's mercy. So his mercy endures forever, it says there, repeatedly in the Old Testament, especially prominent in Psalm 118 and Psalm 136. Now, forever is the Hebrew word olam. And that Hebrew word olam, um, which looks not only backward to time past, but also forward to the future. Uh, Bruce Waltke, the Old Testament scholar, said that the Hebrew word olam, used in connection with either the created order or God himself, can mean from eternity on. And then he references two passages of scripture in reference to that. Psalm 25, verse 6, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. And again, the sense there, according to Bruce Waltke, is from eternity on. In other words, not just comprehending eternity past, but extending to eternity future. Another great representation of this we find in Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, where it says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, I love that phrase there in verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From olam to olam, from eternity past to eternity future. So that phrase, his mercy endures forever, has the connotation of mercy to be shown for all eternity. Now, somebody might ask, and this is kind of the point of Annie's question, why would we need mercy in heaven? We will not sin in heaven, correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. We will not sin in heaven. By the way, that's one of the things that's going to make heaven heaven, is that we won't sin there. But even though we will not sin in heaven, I believe, Annie, to answer your question, we will still be receivers of his mercy. And let me explain to you why. If we define mercy as not getting what we do deserve, we deserve judgment, for example, but we don't get it, and so God shows us his mercy. If that's how we define, by the way, when people define mercy that way, they're defining it sort of in, in distinction to grace. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, punishment, judgment. Grace is getting what you do not deserve, God's love and favor and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So if we're going to define mercy as not getting what we do deserve, then even in heaven, we will have deserved judgment. I thought of it this way. When I get to heaven, I'm still a person who would have deserved judgment apart from Christ. Now, not judgment for the sins that I do commit, because once I get to heaven, I'm not going to commit any more sins. Thank the Lord for that. 
but even in heaven, I will have had been guilty for the sins that I had committed. You see, just because our sins are in the past doesn't mean that we don't need continuing mercy from God for them. So yes, sin will be in the past when we get in heaven. It'll all be, to use a metaphor from driving, it'll all be in the rear view mirror of the car, all behind us. But it'll still be present in the past, washed away by the blood of Jesus. But the ongoing decision to have that in the past and not in the present, not deserving judgment, that will be an ongoing expression of the mercy of God. So Annie, I would say, based on the sense of that phrase, as it's used again and again and again in the Old Testament, his mercy endures forever, based on the idea of olam, meaning eternity past, eternity future, or at least sometimes having that connotation. And based on the fact that even in heaven, we will be people who have deserved judgment, even if we're not sinning at the time, I will say yes. God's mercies will continue towards us in heaven. Now, I'm not going to say that they're going to be new every morning in heaven, because in heaven there is no day or night. There is no morning. Everything is morning. His mercies will be constant and part of his unchanging love and grace to us. So, Annie, that's the best I can think of in regard to that. I hope that's helpful for you, but I am just going to say thank you for the question. I appreciate it. And God bless you, Annie. You are a dear sister to both uh, Ingalil, my wife, and myself. All right, let me go over to the chat bar here and see what we have just with the comments. Karina, thank you for your prayers for me and for my ministry. I do so appreciate that. Um, this is a wonderful time of blessing. I was just looking at some of our website statistics and the last two weeks of web traffic to the Enduring Word website have been absolutely record-setting. And again, I just thank the Lord for that. God has given us unique favor. We don't have a sophisticated operation. We don't know how to game the uh, you know search engine optimization and play tricks with that. All we're trying to do is do the basic things and put out some good content. And God seems to have his hand of blessing on it. But I know it's because people pray. So Karina, thank you for your prayers and uh, continue to pray. Uh, Devin, hi to you as well. Luciana says, oh, that's what happened. Now I get it. Yes, Luciana. As I explained at the beginning of the video, I'm not going to explain it again. You can go back and watch it. But in the beginning of the video, I explained what happened this last Thursday and why it seemed like the plug got pulled on last Thursday's Q&A. Uh, you can listen again for the details to the beginning of this video, but I'll just put it this way. It was all my fault. And you can explain there. Okay, uh, Pastor Miles says, I thought it was my fault. Well, yes, Miles, it was your fault indirectly, uh, but I'll take at least part of the blame as well. Victoria asks this question. How important was the concept of the Davidic dynasty for the future hope of Israel as expressed in the Old Testament? Thank you for taking time. Okay, Victoria, let me read your question again, just so everybody gets it. You want to know how important was the concept of the Davidic dynasty 
The Davidic dynasty just basically means the dynasty that began with King David and continues on with him and finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah, because Jesus is one of the great titles given to him, the son of David, and that he would sit on the throne of his father, of his ancestor, David. How important was the concept of the Davidic dynasty for the future hope of Israel as expressed in the Old Testament? I think it was very important because first of all, it told them, that the Messiah would come from David. What a remarkable narrowing of the prophetic promise that was. Because hypothetically, the Messiah could have come from any number of families in Israel, tribes of Israel, although perhaps a discerning ear would have understood it would come from the tribe of Judah. But now it's settled down to a specific ancestor of the Messiah about 1000 B.C., this man, David, the son of Jesse, David, the king of Israel. And so it assures that the Messiah is going to come and it's going to come from. It's an amplification of the promise of the Messiah. It's also a promise. And this is really what would give hope to Israel, the future hope of Israel, as you express it there, Victoria. It assures the people that the people of Israel and the dynasty of David will not pass away that it will come to a fulfillment in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, I personally, I know Christians have different perspectives on this when it comes to what we call eschatology or the Bible's teaching about last days and end times things. I understand there's different perspectives, but I believe that God even has a future role for that Davidic dynasty, not only its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, but also in David having a special role in the government of the millennial earth. But that's another subject altogether. I think, Victoria, that that promise gave tremendous hope to the people of Israel, letting them know we will not pass away. This promise will be fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled through this special descendant of David, who ended up being Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah. It's good for us to remind ourselves how many times the people of Israel have come very close to extinction. And they needed this enduring hope that they would not pass away until everything God had proclaimed was fulfilled. By the way, I think one of the reasons that we can categorically say, now I can say this biblically, I believe very strongly, but I believe we can also make a historical argument for the statement I'm about to say is simply this. God is not finished with ethnic Israel in his redemptive plan, and they will not perish from the earth. Oh, I know that anti-Semitism, what we would call Jew hatred, is alive and well in the world. And I know that every you know few centuries, some megalomaniac, insane person comes up with a plot to destroy all the Jewish people in the world. Let me tell you, it'll never succeed. Such plots may do great damage to the Jewish people, but they will never, ever succeed because God has his special hand upon Israel as them having ethnic Israel a role in his prophetic plan. So yes, it would give great hope and assurance that Israel would not be destroyed, that they would fulfill and continue to fulfill that role. Thank you for that question, Victoria. I hope I've answered it. Karina asks, how could we discern if a decision or path 
comes from God and not from our own understanding. Greetings from Mexico City. Well, greetings to you, Karina. Glad that you could join me today from Mexico City. One of the things that really delights me about our live stream is that we do have a number of viewers uh, that come in from all around the world, from Europe, from Africa, from uh, South America, of course, from the North American continent, which of course includes Mexico and Mexico City, in any regard. How can we discern if a decision or path comes from God and not from our own understanding? Karina, let me just give you a basic answer to that. Sometimes we just don't know. Sometimes we don't know if something is prompted in us by the Spirit of God or whether it's coming from our own wisdom or judgment. Now, of course, we pray. We surrender everything to God. We say, Lord, I want your will, and I don't want to do what would be my will, especially if my will is going to be expressed in some unwise or selfish sense. But oftentimes, Karina, once, oftentimes what we're looking for is we're looking for a guarantee that a path we are seeking from, in front of us is God's path and will therefore not fail. I just want you to know um, those kind of guarantees are rare in the Christian life. We should never expect them and we should never rely or just let's say not rely on them. We should never um, uh, wait and, and refuse to move until we have such a guarantee. Because look, the bottom line is simply this. We do not have the gift of understanding or relating perfectly what God may speak to us. So we can't depend on our, even if God genuinely speaks to us, it's not within me humanly to perfectly understand or to perfectly apply what God says. So if I have a direction in front of me, a path, as you would say, instead of saying, is this from God? Is this for myself? I think it's better to ask this question. First of all, is it consistent with God's word, both in the specific principles of God's word and then in the general tone of God's word? If a path has sin in it, I know it's not God's path for me. I can just say, no, that isn't God's path. God's path will be determined by being faithful to his word. So that's number one. We discern it according to God's word. But then number two, we also discern it just by going forth and seeing what God will do as we walk down a certain path and trusting that God will guide us along the way. But we kind of have to put aside the idea that God will give us some kind of specific roadmap that we follow for the future and that we can just follow the map and we're okay. Look, God's guidance isn't given to us so much as a roadmap as it's given to us as a guide. Now, let me tell you something. A guide is even better than a roadmap. You know, if you have a map or navigation or directions, sometimes people get it wrong. They don't understand it. They um, turn too early or too fast. How many times have I done that when I'm driving along and I misunderstand when my navigation system wants me to turn? Uh, I think it's coming sooner. I think it's coming later. It's giving me the right information, but I'm not understanding it. So even better than a map is to have a guide. And that's what Jesus wants to be for us. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to be for us. He says, don't think of getting a map from me let me be your guide. Draw close to me and I will guide you along the path. So anyway, I hope that's helpful for you there, uh, Karina. And that's a great question.
Uh, Alabama asks, let me get back to that question. Hi, David. Kevin Diegelman gave me your name. I've been listening to you ever since. My husband and I love you and your ministry. Thank you for all you do. Well, Linda, you are very, very welcome. It's a pleasure for me to do what God has given me the opportunity to do. I'm very grateful for it, and uh, I'm happy that it's a blessing to you. Nathaniel says, what is the spirit of death? Why should we pray for this spirit? Nathaniel, I'm going to be very upfront with you. I don't make any immediate connection with the idea of a spirit of death. Now, sometimes in Christian vocabulary, we use that phrase, a spirit of, in different ways. Sometimes we use it just to refer to an attitude or an atmosphere that can be present among people. For example, sometimes people will say, there's a spirit of heaviness among these people. Basically, what they mean is that the attitude, the atmosphere among these people feels heavy and oppressive. Now, there's other times when Christians use that phrase, a spirit of, and they're associating it with some specific spiritual being. They'll say something like this, there's a spirit of oppression, and they might mean not just an attitude or an atmosphere, but maybe they're referring to a specific even demonic or unclean spirit in the midst that would do something like that. Um, I'm not aware of a regular use of that phrase, a spirit of death in either kind of context. If somebody's saying there's sort of a dead, lifeless attitude or atmosphere among people, well, I've certainly felt that at times. I, I wouldn't say that it is directly caused by a demonic spirit, although it would maybe in the interest of a demonic spirit to exploit such an atmosphere. So um, I, I really can't give you anything more just based on the question as you give it. Um, I don't think we should pray for a spirit of death. Our idea should be we want to see life reign among people, among ourselves and among others. We, we don't need to pray for or regarding a spirit of death other than just to say we want to walk in the glorious life that Jesus Christ has given us. Let me go on here. George says, hey, David, just thinking about Amos 5, is God reaching out to us again as a warning how Christians or so-called Christians treat people? Well, uh, George, I'm going to look this up here. Uh, Amos 5. Let me just look it up here. I'm looking it up actually in the Enduring Word app where we find here Amos 5 um, is talking about seeking God in an midst of impending judgment. It's an invitation for Israel to turn back to the Lord and to live. And then it just talks about the sin of Israel and the judgment that's going to come upon Israel if they do not change their ways. And then especially what you might be referring to is what it talks about in Amos chapter 5, having to do with God hating the ceremonial religion of Israel. It was merely ceremonial. Um, Amos chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And it goes on just to describe this. Let me just say, George, um, this is a constant danger for believers. 
that we would start putting our, our trust in routines, in rituals, and we would forget about keeping a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, that that should be the source of our hope, of our joy, of our relationship with God. Because we are sinful humans, be, because we have um, uh, a good ways to go until we're glorified with God in heaven, while we still live on this side of eternity, we are still going to be um, capable of falling into the trap of religious ceremonialism. And that's what's being spoken about here in Amos. And that is always an appropriate warning for the church to pay heed to. Um, good to MNS Helen. Pastor, your ministry is a blessing. Question, did Adam and Eve go to hell? All right, MNS, I can answer this question for you, I think, pretty categorically. Did Adam and Eve go to hell? No. Adam and Eve will be in heaven with us. When you get to heaven, I, I hope that you're destined for heaven as well because you put your trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did for you on the cross and at the empty tomb. I, I hope that that is the place, the source of your security with God. In any regard, when you get to heaven, you're going to see Adam and Eve. You know how I can say this? I can say this, I believe, with a fair amount of confidence because what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Well, God confronted them. God pronounced the curse upon the woman, upon the man, upon the serpent. And when Adam and Eve had sinned, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Now, it's kind of interesting because actually right outside my door right now is a fig tree. And there are big fig leaves upon it. And uh, I wish I had one of them right now that I could show you. The fig leaves are big, and you can see how somebody could cover their body or cover certain parts of their body with fig leaves. But the other thing about fig leaves is they kind of have this sort of um, small little hairy growth on them that would make them very itchy to put on your body. So Adam and Eve had a covering of fig leaves, but it wasn't very careful. It wasn't very comfortable, I should say. Um, it it would have been uh, an inadequate covering by any means. Now. They knew they had to cover themselves. They tried to cover themselves. They didn't successfully cover themselves because their sense of shame remained so vivid. After God confronted Adam and Eve and put the curse on uh, the woman and womankind, the man and mankind, the devil and devil kind, if you want to use that phrase, it says next in Genesis chapter 3, that God made and gave to Adam and Eve coverings of the skins of animals. They tried to cover themselves and were unsuccessful. God covered them, and he covered them with the skins of animals, which means animals had to be killed or sacrificed to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. That sacrifice looked forward to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus Christ would offer on behalf of all those who put their trust in them. It was God's way of saying to Adam and Eve, you are not naked. I have covered you with the skin of sacrifice. I have covered you with an atoning substitutionary sacrifice. You should have died, but I have covered you with an animal that died in your place. 
I think that's a very powerful thing that speaks to us both from the text of Genesis chapter 3 itself, but then also as God's plan unfolds in the rest of the scriptures. No, I think we can say, and we can say with some confidence, you're going to see Adam and Eve in heaven. God has covered them, and he covered them in the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, continuing on. Stalin asks, Good afternoon. This is Fernando from New York, and I just wanted to have your thoughts on the giants of Genesis 6 and the giants that David and Caleb destroyed. How did giants exist in Joshua and Caleb's time? All right, Stalin, or Fernando, excuse me, Fernando. Um, Fernando, I think that's a good question. I'm going to give you my take, although I want to say this is a controversial subject among Christians, and you're going to find many different answers from many different people that you would ask. But you ask for my opinion, I'll give you my take on this, understanding that it's controversial. I believe that there was something genetically unique about the giants of Genesis chapter 6. And I do believe that that's one of the reasons why God had such a dramatic judgment in the days of Noah. And we have to admit, to completely flood the entire world was a dramatic judgment. There was something that God needed to cleanse and eliminate from the earth. And I think that in some regard, there's this genetic corruption that God is cleansing from the earth in the days of Noah. Well, you ask a very logical question. How then do we have mentions of giants, of the Anakim, of the Nephilim, later on in the Bible, and again, this is my take on this, that those were not actual Nephilim or Anakim or giants as they had before the flood, but they were named that way in memory of them. So when there was a race or a family of extremely large people, they basically said, man, that's just like those people back in Genesis 6, even though there's no genetic connection between the two. I believe that this is somewhat similar to how things would have changed after the flood. Here's the example I use from time to time. The Bible tells us that before the flood, there were rivers that flowed on the earth. One of them was called the Euphrates. The other one was called the Tigris. Well, the Euphrates and the Tigris are rivers that existed after the flood as well. But we know this, that if the flood was as the Bible described it, that it completely would have reworked the geography of the earth and it would not have been the same rivers. Might have been very similar, but the same, no. What these post-flood Tigris and Euphrates rivers were, were named in remembrance of those rivers that were before the flood. I think the same way. There doesn't have to be an actual genetic connection between the uh, giants before the flood and the giants after the flood. There just needs to be a connection of the concept of these large people. Now, is that a great answer? Fernando, I'm going to be honest. I don't know if that's a great answer, but I think that that is a preferred answer than somehow thinking that um, somehow these giants survived the flood and passed on their genetic stuff Anyway, I, th that's the best answer in my mind that we can come to. Um, Thomas says, was Jesus susceptible 
to diseases and sickness? Well, Thomas, that's a great question. And I don't know if I've ever really heard or answered or thought of that question before. So I'm going to give you the first answer that comes to my mind, but reserve the right to reframe my answer later as I would think about it more. I would say that Jesus was. Now, somebody might say, well, um, how could that be? Did Jesus ever have a cold? <laughs> did Jesus ever get an allergy? Uh, did Jesus ever have the flu? Uh, that kind of thing. I would say that he did. And again, I'm just answering off the top of my head, but this is why. Because in his humanity, Jesus embraced the same weaknesses and limitations that we have as human beings. Jesus became hungry as God. He never had to become hungry, but embracing his humanity, he said, I'm not going to access that aspect of my divine nature and I'm going to experience human hunger. Um, Jesus became thirsty the same way. Jesus became um, tired in the same way. Well, these same things of being dependent upon the world around us and interacting with the fallen world around us were the same things that were true of Jesus. I can't say I know exactly that Jesus would have been susceptible to disease and sickness. Certainly, I must say, and this is important to say, we have no biblical record of Jesus being diseased or sick. Absolutely not. So if somebody wants to make the counter argument, I think it's something we can talk about for sure. But I would say that this would be included in the general embrace of human nature as Jesus experienced it in adding humanity to his deity. But that is a great question, Thomas. I think I'm going to think about it some more. Thank you for asking it. Um, Nilo says, is our connection with the Holy Spirit temporarily severed when a believer sins willingly? If so, is there a purification period one must go through before the connection is restored? Now, let me just answer that question based on this idea. It all depends how you're going to define connection. I don't believe that the Holy Spirit departs from a believer when they willingly sin. If so, what a crazy thing that would be. Spirit out, spirit in. Spirit out, spirit in. I mean, it would be continuing. It could be a dozen times a day, spirit out, spirit in. No, so, so we're not talking about the Holy Spirit departing from a believer. But you use the word connection. Is connection severed? I would not use the term severed. In other words, cut in two. But I would use the word affected. The Bible does tell us that we should be careful that we do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It is possible for a believer to grieve God's Spirit, and it's something that believers should not do. That is affecting the relationship that a person has with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit has departed. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is now absent from the person's life. But there is something out of sync, out of step with that person's relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. So again, looking at your question, I would not say temporarily severed, but affected seems to be the right way. And what we want to do 
is when our relationship, our communion with God the Holy Spirit is affected. We have grieved the Holy Spirit of God in some way. Then we want to confess, we want to repent, and trust that God will restore that relationship as we walk in the Spirit. Thank you for that question there, Nalo. Um, Agnes says, can you have an evil spirit in you and not know it? Can a person be a Christian and be possessed by a demonic spirit at the same time? Okay, Agnes, let me give you my take on this question. Again, this is something that is a fair amount of controversy in the Christian world, but you're asking me, so I'm happy to give you my answer to this question. First of all, is it possible for a person to have an evil spirit and not know it? Yes. I suppose that there's many people who are possessed by demons who aren't aware that they're possessed by demons. I would also say this, that it's possible for a person to be affected by demonic spirits and to not discern that it's demonic spirits. You know, the Bible says that we have three classic enemies in the Christian life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's not like there's one passage that spells that out. That's sort of from a collection of passages that we gather that, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's possible for a person to be actually being attacked by and opposed by the devil and his agents and think that it is the world or the flesh. So it's possible for a person to be possessed and not know it. It's also possible for a person to be affected or harassed by a demonic spirit and not know it. But your second question, can a person be a Christian and be possessed by a demonic spirit at the same time? Agnes, I'm going to say no. And again, let me tell you, people define demonic possession in different ways. So I'm going to give you my definition of demonic possession and explain to you why I think Christians can't be demon-possessed. First of all, I think demonic possession means that a demonic spirit is actually living inside a person. That demonic spirit is not on the outside attacking in some way, which of course can happen to a believer, harassing in some way, which of course can happen to a believer, being opposed, you know, opposing a believer in some way, that can happen from the outside. But demonic possession is when a demonic spirit indwells a believer. Secondly, I believe that demonic possession means that in some way that demonic spirit controls that person. And again, I don't believe that a demonic spirit can control a believer. Can they influence? Absolutely. Can a Christian give in to the influence of the demonic spirit? Absolutely. But that's different from control on some level. So if a Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, I don't believe they can also be indwelt by a demonic spirit. Now, again, can demonic spirits attack from the outside? And absolutely. And oftentimes we don't appreciate how and how effectively demonic spirits can attack believers, but they do it from the outside. Secondly, I don't think it's consistent with the scriptures or honoring God to say that a Christian can be controlled by a demonic spirit. We are, as believers, the purchased possession of Jesus Christ. We belong to him, and God isn't going to give up that control to a demonic spirit. So 
influenced or harassed from the outside in? Absolutely, but not from the inside out. I hope that's helpful for you. All right, I'm just going to take a few more questions and then uh, pause for the day. We're up to 45 minutes. Um, Nilo says, greetings and love from Houston. We attend Calvary Chapel Houston from Pastor Ron Hint. Looking forward to meeting you in person. Well, I was out there this last year, Nilo, and send a blessing back to Pastor Ron uh, for me. I so appreciate Ron and the work he's doing there at Calvary Chapel Houston. And then now Aguchu17 says, hello, what can I do to better understand God's calling for my life or even be certain what it is? Well, Gucci, you're asking a question that really can't be answered quickly, but I'll give you a few ideas to start with. First of all, understand that your calling will no doubt be consistent with the gifts God has given you. And when I say gifts, I mean gifts on many different levels. God has made you a certain person just by your genetic makeup, how God has wired you. That's going to be consistent with your calling. Number two, God has given you certain experiences in life. The family he put you in, the thing he's allowed you to experience, the training you received, all of that. And then thirdly, there's the aspect of the spiritual gifts that God has given you. So prayerfully, over time, take a close look at how God has made you genetically, how God has allowed you to develop by the experiences and the trainings of your life, and then whatever spiritual gifts God has given you, those things will probably point you in a direction towards the calling that God has placed on your life. And don't be afraid to ask other people who know you well about these things and to pray with them about it. That may give you some direction along the way as well. Well, I'm sorry that I'm not going to be able to get to the rest of the questions. I see that there's a lot of these questions coming up. And um, I'll just have to get to them at another time. And um, when I do, I'm glad I will be able to get to them. But I want to thank you for joining me on this today's edition of the live q and I'm glad I made it through the whole thing without messing the whole thing up as I did last week. I do want to say, of course, what everybody says, click subscribe and the thumbs up and the receiving the notifications and all the rest of it. But apparently that stuff hopes to make things more visible to an audience on YouTube, and I appreciate it. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. It's exciting to see what God is doing in this strange season, and I'm glad that you can be a part of it through your prayers and support. God bless you. We'll see you next Thursday for another YouTube Live question and answer. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.